Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Beach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Beach State Pandemonium. Good evening and welcome to Beach State Pandemonium for Thursday, September 8th. 2016. This is Michael Norris along with Jay West and Jerry Oates. I know for sure. Did Bobby ever get on with us? He hasn't joined us yet. Okay. He's probably asleep in his chair. <laughs> but anyway, what you guys uh, been us, up to? I will tell you, Jerry was about to tell us about his adventure last week. How did it go, Jerry? Uh, we had uh, we lost power for 23 hours. Uh, we were blessed that, that that's all it was. I mean, you know, there was there was a lot of damage, you know, uh, trees and power lines, and but uh, I mean, it was all day long, and it, I worked all day, and it was it was a mess down at Tybee, but we lost not not the whole island, but quite a few places lost power, and it was at the height of the wind. There's a guy I know down there, a super guy. He's a builder, and he was trying to go kite surfing. So I, I pulled up and I said, Matt, you're not going out there. He said, I've already been. He said, I, oh my God. I, I took the, he said, I took the smallest kite I had. He said, it's about as big as a windshield. He said, even that was too big. He said, I, he said, it's just too powerful. I can't handle it. You know, usually they got big ones, you know, but he had the smallest one he had. And I mean, oh, that ocean was tough. But we were blessed. I mean, it, it just skirted us, but it was wind all day long, all day long. That It's just, we were blessed. How long were you without power? 23 hours. Some people didn't get it back till like, uh, Monday. I, I, I went to the gym today, and there's a guy that works part-time, and he works at, uh, Home Depot right up the street there, and I said, I guess y'all sold a lot of generators Friday, which I heard <laughs> on the news that they sold out. He said, man, he said it was unbelievable. And you know what he told me? What? You would not believe the people that brought them back Monday. You know, I couldn't <laughs> do that for nothing. I mean. You know, I don't get it. You buy something, you buy something, unless it doesn't work. You know, that's the that's a different story. But I but, said. But, but the comeback to that was once they, I guess that's a store policy, once you put gasoline in. I was going to say, you, I wouldn't think they'd be able to return them if they put fuel right. in them. And that's what they did. Can you imagine having the gall to do that? There's no I, way I could do that. Having spent no. those people that buy 25 years in retail, I can tell you what they do, you know. That's like the it, people that buy clothes to wear them to one event, and as soon yeah, as it's over, they take it back because they don't need it anymore. Uh, my ex-wife was that way. When she had access to my Macy's card, when I worked for Macy's or Davison's is what they were when I first went to work for them, right. she would buy a pair of shoes or a dress, wear it to something, and bring it back. And I finally, I decided to break her the habit 
And I told her, I said, uh, she came, she worked right across the street from me, which put a cramp in my uh, lunch date style, but uh, <laughs> that's another story. But uh, she uh, she came over one day and, and wanted my card, and I said, well, I can't give it to you. And she said, why? I said, because it's been flagged. And none of this was true, but I was telling her anyway. She said, what do you mean? I said, you are a habitual returner. <laughs> and I said, and that is, and there there are such things. I said, and oh, they've I'm had you, sure they've had you flagged as a possible shoplifter for returning stuff all the time, which also is is true because one time I was working at Avondale Mall, we had a guy stole a television and brought it back and got his money back, got oh. money not his money, but he got money back for returning a TV that he stole in the first place. But. Uh, <laughs> She Sounds bought pretty it good for a while, but she, but she, you know, she still, you know, would would buy something, wear it one time, and, and take it back. The worst thing I ever saw, and this was before I moved to Atlanta, uh, I was a dating dating a girl in uh, Mobile that uh, worked for a department store down there called Gafers. Oh yeah. And uh, they, um, that store, they had a, an arts and crafts type of department where they sold, you know, knitting yarn and that stuff like that. This lady brought back two sweaters and I don't know how many sets of booties and socks and stuff that she had knitted that she claimed the color ran and she blamed it on the yarn which she bought at Gafers. I want you to know they paid her for all that stuff. You're kidding me. No, it's a word. That's the worst I ever saw, of as far as that. But but people would they raise enough cane and they you know, if you got a weak store manager who doesn't want to deal with it, you know he'll give in to them. Yeah, well, that's bad proposition. I mean that. I mean you're in dire straits, needing power for your family, and you you that whatever. Yeah, you would think you you know it's not like that's the only time that's going to happen that the lights are going to go out in Tabby Island, Savannah. Of course. Well, I don't know. In 1979, I was still living in Mobile, and I was the sporting goods department manager for a uh, place down there called Wilson's. Which, if you guys remember, service merchandise, it was the same type deal. It was what was called a catalog showroom store, where they just had one of everything out on the floor and then when you picked it out they you know somebody had to go pull it from the warehouse um well that was true for most departments but not for the sporting goods department because you know i I stacked everything i could get out on the floor out on the floor and when frederick hit in 1979 i think it was september 79 um i got a 500 hundred dollar bonus because i had my department had the most sales because they came in and bought every coleman lantern (laughs) <laughs> Every gas stove, Coleman stove, coolers, ice chests, everything that I had, they they cleared myself. But uh, you talking about being without power for 23 hours? Mobile was without power for two weeks. That's, that's the uh, the storm was bad enough, but the aftermath of the storm was even worse. Between the price gouging of people wanting to charge three thousand dollars to cut a tree down. You know, or clear a tree out of your yard, yeah, or right. it's laying across your roof, or whatever. And the fact that uh, there was there was no, you couldn't get gasoline, you couldn't get ice. Ice was the main thing. They had shootings and stabbings 
Oh yeah, know, people stand in line to get get ice and stuff. That's but, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know, how dumb are these people? Pensacola didn't get hit at all. They didn't lose any power. They're 40 minutes away. I get my car and go over to Pensacola and buy everything I needed. Well, they have stabbings and shootings over here every day. Well, I'm not kidding. Well, what was the aftermath of the of the beach like? Was it a mess? Uh. No, well, I mean, they had some erosion. They they closed the pier, of course. They had to run people off the pier because it was splashing up under the boardwalk. I mean, you know, and you got idiots out there, you know, just mobs of people. And had people on the beach. So it, 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 uh, it wasn't, uh, yeah, it was, you know, like palm leaves and seaweed, palm, stuff like that. Yeah, everything just everywhere, especially in the streets, you know, pine straw. It was just a lot of debris, a lot of debris, you know, from trees and stuff like that. I was going down Main Street there, and I, I saw this garbage can. It's a big, like a 55-gallon drum, hard plastic black garbage can, and it was coming down the main drag there like a missile. <laughs> so I, I, I turned around. And, and finally got it, and the wind was blowing so hard, I was scared to, I had to put it up against the bumper, the front bumper, and hold it. I said, if I pick this thing up, and this thing catches air, well, I, there's no telling where I'm going. So I just finally, I mean, it was constant blowing. I just finally took it and just put it in some bushes by a fence and left it. I mean, you, you, you just couldn't—you couldn't handle anything in that wind. You just like going to put a hole in a, a, a sheet of plywood on top of your car. Try that sometime. See how that works out. <laughs> I know Jody but said it, last week that Tampa was getting a lot of rain and stuff. But I talked to my aunt who lives in Lutz, which is just north of Tampa. They—they uh, they didn't get much of anything at all. Well, we didn't have anything here except a couple of nights that were a little cooler than usual, and. Other than that, it was uh, business as usual for here, and actually it wasn't bad getting that little cooler weather for a couple of days. It was cool Friday night, thank God. But the house was kind of cool, you know, and I was able to sleep, and it popped back on the next morning about, I don't know, 6 o'clock. But it was, it was uh, I, 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 listen, I respect all that Bad weather. I mean, I, it makes me nervous. <laughs> You're not kidding. And and what scares me is tornadoes. You know, they would. You know, those tornado watches. You know, they can just drop out of the sky anytime. You know, so yep. that's what's scary. Those tornadoes. But thank God we none hitting Savannah. Well, that's good. I I had just soon been in. Uh, uh, what was that town? Up the road. What a man went to jail. Oh, and Dudley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dudley. I'd rather be than Dudley. <laughs> any, any more news on him? See, uh, I haven't heard anything else on it. I think oh. that, that, that story's come and gone, hopefully. But, uh, well, you guys ready for football season? Yeah, I don't know how this game comes on at 8 30 tonight. That's ridiculous. Who's playing it? Denver and Charlotte. 
they've got that marked as Sunday night football on my. my well, they're marked. Yeah, they got to start it at eight thirty because they're playing in Denver, which is only what five thirty out there. Right, so I guess two, hours, to, two hours. Two hours. Yeah, it's five thirty there. If it's eight thirty here. No. Well, one thing. Uh, well, let, me, let me throw no, something in the, in the ring here, just to. Denver? I'm sorry, it's six thirty. It's Mountain Time there in Denver. Yeah, yeah, yeah hours, a couple hours. Okay. Uh, Charles Bellflower, a gentleman out of Athens that listens every week, he sent me a note here just before we went on, and he had a question, and, and I think it's a simple answer. Or I. I uh, he was questioned, and he said sometimes he knew that uh, he said he knew that Mr. Ward had a Columbus champion and a Macon champion, and sometimes referred to his tag champions as Southeastern tag champions, but they were never mentioned in Atlanta. And he asked the question, "Did Mr. Ward pick his own champions?" And the simple answer to that is yes. Uh, uh, Charles, Mr. Ward, uh, mo- a lot of times Mr. Ward had his own Booker for his towns. Uh, there were times that he used the Atlanta Booker. And they just ran the programs all around the the state. But there were times that Mr. Ward had his uh, his own Booker, and they did their own thing that uh, it would be totally different than what we were doing in the Atlanta town. So, hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah well, it, may, it makes a lot of sense because he had his own TV and everything to to you know run all of his angles off of. Yeah, he, he ran his he ran his own TV shows. He did everything. He was totally independent. Well, let me ask you this, but then, Bobby, if, if if a guy that worked for the Atlanta Booking Office or was booked predominantly there, if he worked for Fred Ward, then did he get his payoff from Fred, or did it come out of the Atlanta Booking Office? Mr. Ward did his own payoffs, and he would uh, they would mail uh, they would total up the, they would uh, send a check. I'd usually get a check on Monday morning out of the mail, and it would be from Fred Ward Promotions. And it would cover the booking fee, whatever that was between them and the Atlanta office, and I don't remember what that was. And it was also the uh, 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 the uh, payoff for all the guys. He he, uh, Ralph would call me. No, I did the payroll a lot of times. When we were paying the guys on Wednesdays, Wednesdays, or I'm sorry, on Mondays, I would do the payroll at home on Sunday afternoons. A lot of times, it was just easier to do. Phone what? No phone ringing. I could sit and do the totals and. And then have everything ready for for Barnett to sign the checks on Monday, but uh, yeah, uh, Ralph would usually call me on Friday afternoons, and we would uh, you know I'd have a list of the matches, and we would go right down the list, and he would tell me who made what, and then I'd get the check on Monday, and uh, but yeah, all the payoffs for those towns came from Mr. Ward. So then he also paid a booking fee to the Atlanta office for the use of the guys that were coming out of the Atlanta office. I said booking fee. He had some kind of maybe it wasn't a booking fee. I know I know on spot shows he used the ring out of Atlanta. He would pay the office for the use of the ring. Uh, they had a fee set up for for you know for us taking the ring down out of Atlanta and setting it up. And, uh, so it, there was a lot of little things there, but yeah, it was. A, I'm not sure it was a booking fee, but uh, he had a he did pay the Atlanta office a little. Uh, yeah, there was some some money that went to the Atlanta office. How many of those titles did you hold, Jerry? Those city titles? Just the Columbus uh, singles title. Because I know he Columbus. used Columbus and Macon. He had both singles and tag in both of those, right? I don't think he... Or was it just yeah, in Macon he had a tag? Yeah, he didn't have a tag in Columbus. But okay, I, was, I, he, I remember. He had an Albany city title for whenever they'd run down there, correct? 
that I don't know either. He had an America's title, and they had a little trophy. It was, I don't know, it wasn't very big at all. I don't it was really, that. I don't it was really that. embarrassing. Well, it didn't last long because Jody Hamilton either won it or lost it, and he stomped it into about 6,000 pieces in the middle of the ring. I don't know. I did, was the Columbus title called the Columbus title, or was it the South uh, Southeastern title? It was the Columbus Heavyweight Championship. Champion, yeah, that's year. exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. That's what it was. I don't remember that okay. being over a tag southeast of nothing. Well, there. I don't. I don't. I know that. I know that at one time they had a set of belts in Atlanta. They called them the Southeastern Tag Belts. That was those red, white, and blue belts that that uh, uh, you see the picture of Doug Gilbert and Bobby Shane wearing them floating right. around periodically. But uh, they're. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't remember. I know we had a make of tag team champions. But I don't necessarily remember a Columbus Tag Team Championship. Yeah, the making tag team belts were Malkovic belts because I've got pictures of Bobby Shane and Gorgeous George Jr. with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, of course, Armstrong held all those titles at one time or another because I've got pictures of him with the making belt and with the, the Columbus belt and um, probably one of the Southeastern Tag belts. Well, well just a, a good example. A good example of, of, of the difference in the bookings. Uh, Mr. Ward took care of Bill Trumbull and Bob Armstrong extremely well. Yeah. Uh, they worked a lot of top shots in Mr. Ward's. Yeah, they worked a lot of top shots in Mr. Uh, Ward's towns, and, and they did not work that many in Atlanta. Am I not wrong, uh, Jerry? That you were pretty well taken care of in Columbus. I was not. You were not. No. I I just kind of thought being a hometown guy, you in your opinion, and you may have answered this before. Uh, did that? You're saying then that it worked against you being a hometown guy in Columbus? Yes. I have my own thoughts about that, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, you know, um, for whatever reason, uh, and I really didn't care. You know, I mean. Uh, it was like, I mean, I had some good shots there, but nothing. I didn't know if they were afraid that if I got over, that would be like a threat to them. Or, you know, what they thought, I don't know, and, and, and really don't care, you know. Let me, let me ask you something, else. Jerry. This I, is, I did better in other territories than I did at home. I'm I'm dumb enough to ask this to you because I, I just, but it's, do you think, do you think being Dickie's brother-in-law held you back a little bit in Ward's eyes, too? Uh, you, you know, Bobby, I have been told that that could have been. Uh, and, you know, looking at it through his eyes, I can see why that would have been. I mean, because Dickie, I mean, it was, I mean, he always said, you know, if you're going to do your thing, do your thing. But he couldn't leave it. Dickie couldn't leave it alone. I know. He always writes some snide stuff and say snide stuff. And, you know, and he made money there for Mr. Ward. He was, he was good, you know, yeah. when he was there. But you were one of the few people that ever asked me that, Bobby. Well, and, I just and, it just popped in my head. And, and, and I can see where it could have because – 
I know when all of that, you know, that was one of the towns when that breakup happened and that war went on for two years. That was one of the towns that got real nasty. Mr. Ward trying to protect his his venue and Dickie trying to get in the venue. And, I mean, it made as far as going to the city council and it was in the newspapers. And I just, and I, and I often wondered if, if that was, I mean, you know, I, it's like I told you, when we first, when I first went to work for Barnett, you know, Harley told me the day I walked in there, he said, Mr. Ward's not going to use you because you work for Gunkel. Told me just first thing when I walked in. But I'd never see, met the man. So, But see, I can, I can see, I see both sides of that. Yeah. Mr. Ward had, had to battle the Atlanta office all those years. Right. And, and, I mean, before you ever got there. I mean, it was... It was like I told like I told Eddie Graham and, and Ralph Reed when that when that split come I said that and, and Gunkel was running I said they're trying to steal Savannah they don't you don't know what you're talking about I said don't tell me don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about and and, and, and there's a bunch of thieves in here on, on this side running things so yeah. you know it, it was it was whatever anybody ever read about it. It was worse than what they can read. And I see Fred Ward's part protecting his livelihood, protecting his business, and I saw the other sides. You know, who who is anybody to say you can't rent a building? Right. But I understand what he was doing. You would have done the same thing. Sure. Think about that. Yes, sir. Anybody anybody said they wouldn't is a liar. He was protecting his livelihood. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you I know. see both sides of that whole thing. But if you're gonna do it, Dickie couldn't leave it alone. Even though he got in in the end what they set out to do, but he could not leave that alone. He couldn't leave it alone. Well, I know, I know it was. I know there were a lot of hard feelings, and that, and that's you know, I, I know that's a hard question to answer. But I just, I wondered if you if if you had any feelings on that. I, you know, and and I'm I'm gonna tell you something I've never told anybody. I've never said this to a living, breathing soul, but it don't matter anymore. When the whole thing, when it finally shook down and Mr. Ward started started using me, and the whole reason he he, he used me was because, you know, it's a matter of uh, you know, uh, if you need somebody and I'm the only one available, what are you gonna do? And that's what happened. I went to making TV. That was the first time that broke the ice. And he started using me after that. And then, of course, when he needed new floors put on his ring or he needed work done to a ring, you know, oh, well, you know, send Bobby down. But when when the thing finally shook out and it was all said and done, I remember him calling me one time, Mr. Ward and Ralph both, they called me and they said, they said, we can't find some of the equipment and we think it's been stolen. And Dickie was running, he was, you know, he ran some towns even after Gunkel went out of business. Dickie ran some towns around Columbus. He was running Greenville that night, uh, right up the road there, just past White right. Springs. And it was on a Saturday night, and they said, "Hey, how about riding up there and see if uh, see see what kind of equipment he's got? See if he's using our equipment." Well, I I went home. I went. Well, you know, my my first wife lived in Columbus. I went to her mom and dad's house, and I was sitting there and I was thinking about it, and I thought, I'm not going up there. You know, I mean, this is crazy. So, you know, I told them something came up. I didn't go or whatever. But the thing they told me was gone was a red mat cover. It was a, it was one Dickie had bought to use on TV. And it was the only one I'd ever seen. It was a, a very nice mat cover, but it was red. And uh, 
when I went down to rebuild the ring in the, in the old TV in the, in the sports arena there, guess what I found hid back in the back? <laughs> I was Matt looking cover. for some woods, a red mat cover. So, you know, that's you're right. It went on on both sides. There was a lot of things went on back there. I've never told that. That's the first time I've ever told that story. It's the first time but, it's ever been out of my mouth. But, you but know, see, it, it's, it's just it was what it was. And, and it was, and I'll tell you what, it, it, was, it got ugly. It got yep. ugly. And we were yeah. caught in the middle, you know. Just what do you do? We were caught in the middle, and and and, and by you saying that, I, one of the other, um, the other person that has told, not the only person, but my wife Kathy always believed that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, in some cases, the hometown guy, uh, particularly if he's been other places and he's done well and he comes back. That can be a plus, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I think it's like you said, Jerry, there was uh, some hard feelings, and uh, some people hold hard feelings more so than other people do, you know, uh, grudges about things that have happened. Bobby, you've also and, and, mentioned how uh, cutthroat people were when they thought they could make a dime, they'd be willing to do anything. Uh, so it's it's really hard sometimes to judge why people do exactly what they do. But, uh, you know, there can be some preconceived ideas about people, and once they actually come face-to-face, like you did when you went to work for Fred down there, they find out that those preconceived ideas were wrong. And uh, once that happens, yeah, see, then, worked, you know, I things are okay. With, I, I had worked for him prior to all that. I, had, I, I, was, I was, when I come back up from Florida, I was here a pretty good while and then when that split happened, I was I was in Mobile at the time. Well, I was actually left Mobile and went to Montgomery, but 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 you know it's like Bobby said, you know, if I hold a grudge against Bobby, mm-hmm. for for I mean, he was trying to make a living like everybody else. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah. And why why judge me or hold? I mean, you should judge the, if you go to. Which we're not supposed to judge anybody, but if you're going to judge somebody, judge me for me, not because I, uh, my sister was married to this idiot, you know? But yeah. Stuff like that happens. It's like it's, it's just like I might have told the story. I'm like, well, you know, you know, a lot of people can't handle the truth, and I've never told any lie on this show about anything I've ever done in the business or saw or heard or whatever. But it, it was like. Um, I don't know if I ever, y'all know the, the Abe Jacobs and Dickie story. I'm, I'm yeah. in Louisiana, and I never met a. So I've been there about a week, and uh, he come up to me and he said, uh, he, I, was, I think it was my first full week, he said, uh, you, you want to ride that loop with me? We was going to go to, uh, was gonna go to uh, Baton Rouge and New Orleans and then Lafayette and then back to, to uh Report on a on late, you know, on a Friday night. I said, sure. I said, you know, I, I've never been down there. He said, well, you can ride with me. So, if I told y'all this story, tell me. So we, we're halfway down the Baton Rouge, and uh, we're talking. And Abe was a great guy. I'd never met him before. Heard of him. Heard the stories. And uh, so uh, I said, uh, it's about halfway down there. He was a nice man. Bobby, did you ever meet him? Never met him. Nicest guy you ever want to meet. But anyhow. I said, hey, uh, do you know who I am? He said, yeah. He said, I know who you are. Not that I was asking him, but was I somebody? Right. He knew what I was talking about. He said, yeah. He said, I, I, I know who you are. And I said, Abe, hey, I said, I, 
just want to let you know that I'm nothing like that. I'm, I'm, I said I found this out, you know, actually when the split come, that's when I found out about it. And I said, and I, he said, well, what did you hear? And I told him. He said, that's what that was. That's the truth. And I said, I did. He said, look. He said, I do not hold that against you. He said, you wasn't even around then. You wasn't. He said, no. He, I said, don't you ever think that about me, nothing, and and we became great friends, you know, but I had to say that, because it happened to him, you know, oh. and and so that was that, but yeah, and, and you know, and, and that was in Louisiana, and you know, I went other places, and, and, and I don't think that ever affected me, you know, but I think around here, it's well, it didn't any, put any feathers in my cap, that's for sure. But I, <laughs> well, I'm there was also there for, for many years, there was a, a pretty much unwritten rule that if it was a, a local guy that uh, they just didn't give him a push, period. I mean, look at Jerry Stubbs and uh, Randy Alls. They never, you know, great. both of them great workers, but they never got above, you know, middle of the card, you know, for right. the second or third match in and around Atlanta. Um same way in the beginning of Ricky Gibson's career. Uh, other than the, Kelly gave him a bit of a push in his own hometown in Pensacola, but for the rest of the cities around, you know, the Gulf Coast Territory, until he'd been in the business almost five years, he never got, you know, beyond for a second, third match. But yet, yet he was got a big push in Atlanta, uh, got a big push uh, in Florida and in Tennessee, but, uh, and, you know, could out could work with anybody and do anything. You know, the guy was just a fantastic worker, but it just seemed to be a hard, fast rule that if you were a, you know, local, I guess, you know, they expect because people watched you grow up or something. I just, I never got that. I never got that under that understanding as far as. But, uh, but I, I, I do want to make something clear now about all that. I'm not blaming him for that. About the way I was used around here or in Columbus, or I'm not blaming Steinborn for that. Now I don't want y'all to think I am. Uh, I'm not doing uh, that. I at never all. thought that, uh, Mike. Your question or your uh, response there—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's fairly common, particularly when somebody's promoted. That if you're coming in from somewhere else, you've got a reputation, you know, and and, and people tend to buy that. Uh, they buy that in the music business, particularly if you're working. Uh, musician, if you're, well, we're bringing in somebody from Nashville, or we're bringing in somebody from Texas, and they, you know, they may have worked two places, but if you can promote them right as coming in from somewhere else to appear locally, it, it gives the audience the idea that, uh, that somehow or another they are more seasoned musicians or performers, you know, and uh, that's part of what promoting is, I think, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, people that are local to the area uh, can lose out like that. Uh, getting back to the wrestling, I think, though, Bob Armstrong was kind of a guy that uh, kind of beat that that deal. But, of course, the fact that he stayed with the Atlanta office after the split occurred, uh, that certainly worked to his benefit, too. Yes, it did. It did. But it there again, out. you know, where he was actually a hometown boy was Marietta, which was was run, if I'm not mistaken, out of the Atlanta office. He didn't. Yeah, he was. wasn't used that much up here. He, he was sure mainly, was. I mean, you know, from from Ward's area down. 
And uh, once once the split once the split occurred, he got a lot of bookings and main event of bookings very quickly in Atlanta. Yeah, because they really didn't have they didn't have much choice because you know the, the fans weren't aware of who he was. I mean, yep. during the split, him and you know Robert Fuller were the probably the top tag team in uh, the Atlanta office for a long time between them and the, the Monroes. They had you know quite a quite a deal going there um but uh you know it just it was it was strange even uh, going back to the mobile territory even uh him being lee fields son ricky fields never got much beyond uh opening match until he left and uh Went to Florida and went to uh, Tennessee, and he he really didn't get much of a push until Lee's very last year in the in promoting down there. And by that time, Ricky'd been in the business uh, three or four years, but just never got a whole you know a, a lot of a push. Now he would you know he'd win his matches. He would for the first couple of years he was part of a tag team with his cousin uh, Johnny Fields, who was Don's son, and. Um, but they were, you know, they were a young, good-looking team and everything, and kind of a precursor to the the Rock and Roll Express, that type of work and everything. Um, now, when when Ruben, or as most people know him, Robert Gibson, initially came along, he got a he kind of got a push built on angles around Ricky, because he was a referee, and you know he would he would get involved with somebody and it was usually somebody like Billy Spears who Ricky had a, a long history with and Ricky would come in from another territory and, and uh, he and Reuben would team up and he'd go from there that was that was how his initial push got you know started but you know there was just there just seemed to be not a whole lot of local uh, well one other guy that got got a brief push and it didn't last but you know, three or four months, but uh, Terry Lathan from from Mobile. Um, his first big push was as a heel over in the Mississippi, and and he had to wear a mask. He didn't want him working Mobile, and then he went off to Oklahoma and, and got a lot more experience, and then came back. and Kelly decided to put the the main title on him, and that lasted you know two three months, and then he was right back. Even when he was was the Gulf Coast champion, he was an opening card, you know, matches. What he making title offenses? He was in, you know, the, you know, opening card in places like Dothan and, and Pensacola and places like that. But it's it's just, I guess it's just how different promoters see things. But uh, luck of the draw, and you know, sometimes it's just how how much a guy wants something as to uh, how much he's re- willing to push himself and where he's willing to go in order to uh, try to get over. I mean, we've seen folks that have been big in certain areas that you know couldn't make it in others uh and you kind of scratch your head about that but uh it, it happens you can look yeah, back it's all in how they're used and everything yeah you, you look you look back at this business the business that we knew and and, and you and you sit down and try to analyze it like yeah, because there was no set, no set hard fast rule of, of no anything as far as how things went. And 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 you you look back, and I look at myself. Not that I was anybody. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, but I was somebody that was dependable. 
never griped or bitched about my money, never complained about the bookings, how far the miles were, didn't care. I knew what I was, as, as uh, Joe Malenko said, we knew what we was getting into. And, and, and wasn't a drunk, never never come in. I didn't drink. I didn't come in drunk. I didn't come in doped up. And you know what that meant? Absolutely zero. Well, well, tell me this, they Jerry. Rather, did they it ever... rather put all their eggs in, in a basket with a with a drug addict or a drunk. I saw it night after night, and Bobby Simmons saw it. He wrote yep. the checks for him yep. too. He saw it. He's, he, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and make nothing up. And you and I right. used to sit and wonder what what kind of business is this? <laughs> what is it? Yeah, you can take you if a guy can walk, you can get him over. Yes, sir. Well, you know, you talk about analyzing this business. The bookers, the people that were bookers that made money, you know, and and they would go from place to place because as the booker would run out of ideas or or an owner would say, okay, it's time to make a change. You know, you kept hearing about the same bookers in different places all over. Well, these guys had their own crew. Uh So when, when a booker would leave Atlanta and he would go to Tennessee or he would go to wherever, you know, you'd start seeing guys leave here, and right to Tennessee they would go because that booker was going to use those guys. He was going to push them and put them in those top spots because I don't want to say they were buddies, but that's what it boiled down to. They were, you know, that's what it boiled down to. And it didn't matter. And Jerry's absolutely right. It didn't matter. You get anybody over. I mean, you can yep. get anybody over. A promoter, and that's that's another thing that always amazed me was these guys started believing their own crap and thought they were doing it. You know, that guy right. that was putting them over every night was just important or more so important than the guys that were that were getting their hand raised and getting pushed. To, you know. to, clarify, to clarify just what Bobby Simmons says, anybody can get over. Look how they got me and the McGuire twins over in Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, uh, you know, but what you're saying there, Bobby, it – you know, and and the fans didn't realize that unless they were really, really smart. That it was more difficult to lose believably than it was to win believably in many cases. You know, sure it was. They were the, yeah. I mean, those were the yeah. guys that were really, you know, putting themselves out there and taking a beating in many cases and not moving up, and they were really making the guy that was uh, on top look better. And, the unsung you know, heroes of our business are the guys that had those 25- and 30-year careers that were never on top, that went from territory to territory, and all they did was go out and bust their butt every night, put guys over, do it convincingly, and made their money and went home. Mm-hmm. One, one right. of the greatest examples I can think of off the top of my head of that is Charlie Fulton. Yep. Charlie did get a little push in Tennessee under a mask. I realize that. But for the majority of Charlie Fulton's career, he went out and lost every night. But he, like Jerry, he wasn't a drunk. He showed up every night. He never griped. He never said a word. This is what we'd like for you to do. Okay. And he right. went out and he did it, and he did it well. Those he, there were other guys. There were so many guys like mm-hmm. that. The other people I can think of, Frank Martinez, Tony Russo. You know, guys like that that worked, you know, dozens Go back further of territories. Bunk, Bunk Harris. Bunk Harris, exactly. Bunk Harris. I never know Bunk to be on top anywhere. I know he made some money in Charlotte as a manager. But for years and years and years, 
you know, go out there and just bust his tail. And, right. Uh, hey, you know, those, those guys, they're the unsung heroes of our business. Everybody's going to remember the guys that got the big push, but those kind of guys, they're they're the ones that got the guys over that made the big bucks. Sure. And you think about the prima donnas today that refuse to uh, go with a clean finish, you know, where they're going to uh, lose oh. the match. They just refuse to do it, you know. I'm I'm too I'm I'm too big for that, you know. I, it's it's yeah, you'll hurt my t-shirt sales. Yeah. How many times how many times Jerry did you and you and Ted when you guys were in the Carolinas? How many nights did y'all go out and put 35, 40, 45 minutes in so the two guys at the main event could come behind you and do about 10, 12, 15 minutes and go home? That was our slot, and that's what we did. <laughs> that's just what I'm talking about. Think, well, it was. It was. That was our slot. Yep. And, and George Scott knew we could do it. Whatever, yep. you, whatever he wanted, we did it. And we and we never went under 30 minutes. Hardly ever. Because the movie is not going to go that long. But, but the scariest part of all, and, and, and Bobby Simmons has alluded to this fact, there was a man running this territory, eventually owned it, running this multi-million dollar business and didn't know Bud Sawyer was on drugs. <laughs> How scary is that? Is that scary or not? Well, you know, that, that's, that's what's known as selective amnesia. Right, you know, you figure a guy takes a, take, takes too many shots to the head, and you think that's he's acting that way because he's took too many shots to the head, or the fact that he's there, he's that way all the time. So you assume that's his, you know, natural persona, but that's pretty stupid when you really think about it. Listen, Listen I hate people to, just kind of turn their to heads. talk about the dead. He's not here to defend himself, but this is the truth. If I've ever told it, you would not believe how many times my telephone rang at that office, eight thirty, quarter to nine. Wanted to know if the checks were ready because his grandmother had died, his mama was dead, this one had died, that one had done it, simply because he had to pay that he had to pay that uh, that pusher or whatever he was dealing with because he wanted more, or didn't want to get you know. I, I, y'all may know who I'm talking about, but there's another there was another top baby face in this territory that had a car repossessed from a house, from a house show one night. And it had bullet holes in the door. It looked like Bonnie and Clyde where he had tried to run from a drug dealer. So, you know, it, it, it's, this is uh, – it was Jerry knows exactly what he's talking about. I mean, it, those were the kind of guys they wanted you to go out and give your body to every night. Exactly. <laughs> and they were and they were making pretty good money, and they were turning it over to the drug dealers. You know, it's, They were it's making very, huge money. Uh, yeah, and you think about it today, you know, Jerry, uh, with your career and the fact that you were there every night doing what you were supposed to do, at least, you know, you you could say you ended your career, uh, you know, being Jerry Oates and, and what you were, and some of these guys made really, uh, you know, it's, it's it's so much money that you cry maybe when you think about it, and they don't have a dime to their, you know, to their life. They just, they're, they're totally broke, and they... They they can't seem to seem to admit why you know uh, they don't they don't have any money. Well, you know it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out why they don't have any money, or why their health is so is so bad. It's, it's, you know we've lost so many for you know not natural causes. So many many of them. You know it's yes. Just, just, you know none of us are guaranteed to be here tomorrow, but. You know, to speed it up the way a lot of them did, I just, I just, 
I don't know. You know, different strokes for different people, I guess. But I, 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 I never got it. I, I was like hundreds and hundreds of guys before me and after me that did it because that's what they wanted to do, and and I was proud to do it. But I, you know, I just, I mean, I just, I mean, would you want to get on a plane with a pilot drunk? <coughs> I would. I, you know, I wonder how those, you know, those guys. I mean, I. I'm like you. I've never been drunk in my life, and I never took the drugs. But there's times I got home at night. I was so tired. I didn't remember how I got home. Right. You know, just staring yeah, at taillights. You know, I missed my exit where the the taillights in front of me would hypnotize me. You know, I mean, I don't know if anybody else did that or not, but I have. And the thing but is... But you and I knew guys that was that way going to the matches. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know how to... Can you imagine? I mean, you know... We've talked about the number of guys on the road at night during any particular during the territory days. How did these guys not get killed on the road? I mean, I just don't. You can just imagine how many were on the road on yeah. any uh, given night, and and how many other people you know they were just driving home from work or whatnot, or uh, what jeopardy they were in based on the condition of these guys. It's really scary when you look back at it, and you know, I, you know, I. Ninety-nine percent of my miles, I drove them. I didn't ride with guys. Very rare. I, I, I understand what you're talking about, Jerry. Uh, I just, you know, I just wasn't riding the car with guys smoking dope and drinking a fifth of vodka and, and a case of beer. I, I, that was just me. I didn't care if they did it. I wasn't going right. to do it. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to go to jail career. or die for something somebody else was doing stupid. Thank you. I mean, it's I dangerous as it was out there on the road, you know. There was, you know, I mean, I, I made a lot of miles with Ronnie West and, and John Walker, but that was because I knew what I, I knew the product I was riding with. But you know, there's a lot of guys I wouldn't ride with. When you, uh, Jerry, when you were in Mobile the first time in '71, did they, did they approach you at any time by staying longer, or no. you know, maybe? No, I Pushing nah. you up the card some more? No. See, I, I never understood that because even though you had only been in the business, you know, a year, year and a half, you had had some, you know, a little bit of national notoriety and national publicity being in, in some of the magazines, mainly because of who your brother-in-law at the time was. But the only thing I can figure in, in, as far as mobiles is, is you were a foot taller than everybody else that worked in the territory. So, Well, I know. But that the I know that only reunion I went to in Mobile, uh Kelly told me, he said, You know, he said, I wish I'd have really used you better. I'm thinking, uh a little late now, but I said, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate that, you know, Bob. But you know he said, I really should have but you know, I mean, I was just another face in the crowd. They had their own thing going on and right. you know. So, but that's uh, the thing it. is, though, and I, and again, we're going back to how how bookers and promoters looked at things. You know, here's here's Jerry Oates. You know, six foot three, two hundred twenty five, two hundred thirty pounds. You know, real well built, and uh, got you know great moves in the ring. You know, a great wrestler could could do just anything with anybody. And then you turn around and look at. at Frank Dalton, who looked like they just drug him out of the, the back of a bar somewhere, and he's wearing a pair of blue jeans and, and 
fringe moccasins. And Frank was a good worker. I'm not going to knock that, but he was a great bump taker, fantastic bump taker. But then I'm thinking, you know, why are they they pushing somebody like that? Even even when you were in the territory, Lucas um, was kind of on the. Now his his career kind of right there in the early seventies kind of dipped down, and they, you know, he was mainly, you know, middle of the card, and he wasn't getting a whole lot of push until everybody was gone, and they went back to him, and he was, you know, wound up being the the biggest star other than Lee Fields that that territory ever had. Even I I would even put him. A little higher on the on the food chain than Kelly because Kelly stayed out of so much of it. You know, he didn't. He was not the type of booker that would push himself constantly. You know, when when you know he thought the time was right, he would and and he'd come. You know, make a comeback or, or reappear and, and uh, you know he would he would grow the crowds. But for the most part, he didn't book himself on top all the time for you know continuously year after year after year but i just i just never saw that now when you started coming back and and later on in the 70s and you were mainly working for rocky mcguire on his end of the territories they always kind of featured you in you know semi-mains or main events or whatever now, I, you know, i've uh, even got a, a i've got a clipping where they build you as the the georgia heavyweight champion and that was a title that unfortunately you never got to wear no uh, you know, uh, I, I appreciate all the nice things you said about my work and whatever. But you know, uh, during you know, I, I never had any hard feelings toward anybody in uh, Mobile at that time. You know, uh, it was. Uh, and, and the sad part about it, I loved it down there. I would have loved to have gone back and you know, as they say, be taken care of and really pushed and. But I loved it down there. I really did. I, I love wrestling in Dothan, Alabama, better than anybody ever did it. I, I loved it, you know, and I, I just love that territory, you know, Pensacola, Mobile. I, I just liked it, but you know, I never really, you know, went back, you know, full time. I just be in and out for Rocky or something. But you know, so many things you, you wish you should have, could have, but didn't, you know. But, just how it worked out, and it's, it's all right. Well, you know, as you've explained it, Mike, uh, the the territory over there was a pretty closed shop, wasn't it? I mean, if you didn't know the fields or... For the uh, most part, yeah. Um, but, you know, they would bring in guys periodically that from other territories. A perfect example is not long after Jerry left, uh, they brought in a guy and, and uh, had him in the one of the semi-main events, and put him over for the uh, – and, and it, it wasn't a big – you know, hearing thinking about it now or people listening that aren't didn't grow up in that territory, he won the City of Mobile trophy, beating Gorgeous George Jr. And, you know, but that was a big deal in Mobile. I mean, that, that title was the secondary to the Gulf Coast title. A lot of times it was main event, you know, defending that title, depending on who held it. But that was Bill White. Bill came in, did that, you know, won the title, held it two weeks, dropped it back to George Jr., and then uh, did jobs on his way out. He wasn't in the territory, you know, but but two or three months. And uh, but I mean, there were guys like that that would would uh, come in. That I just, as a fan, I just 
and and looking back now, wondering what what it was. Maybe it was their personality, or or they just they just you know weren't interested in in doing better in that particular territory. Another guy that I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of him, a guy by the name of Leo Seitz. Leo Seitz was was a tremendous worker. Had a good good look to him. Um, you know, he was. You think of of what Marty Lundy looked like when he first started out, and that's about what what uh, Leo Seitz was like. You could have put him under a hood and, and used him main event anywhere in the country, but he just, you know, as far as I know, he never worked anywhere but prelim stuff. Of course, he was uh, in his native of uh, he was a native of San Antonio, and I think he was a school teacher or something full time. And then he just went to other territories during the summertime. But and when he worked in San Antonio, you know, he was a full time school teacher who just did you know TV shots and stuff like that. And I can see that somebody like that not getting a, a push, but and maybe he just you know. The business was just a sideline for him, but that goes back to what what Bobby was saying. It's guys like that that you could you could build a territory around, and um, you know they were they were your mainstays. And, you know the ones that came in as as main eventers and stuff like that. Duke Myers was a good example. He came into Mobile and they put the title on him right away, and then uh, they were were doing good business with him, and then all of a sudden he just up and disappeared. Come to find out years later, because I was sitting there when he told Kelly um, why he left. Because Kelly asked him one time at one of the reunions, said, "You know what happened, Duke? How come? How come you just kind of disappeared? We had big plans for you." And he said, "Well, I was over in Dothan, and uh, Rip Tyler came to me in the dressing room and said that uh, you were getting ready to fire me. So I just wasn't going to wait on it, and I just packed my bags and left that night and missed his bookings." And uh, what it was, I guess, you know, Rip thought he was taking his spot or whatever, so Rip <laughs> told him a story and he left the territory. <laughs> That's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know. Oh, it happens. You know, it's, uh, yeah, people can be scared that you, uh, uh, you know, uh, that you can push them out, and if they've got the ear of the promoter or the guy in charge, uh, uh, they'll certainly use whatever they can to uh keep you from being around for any length of time. But but Duke Duke Myers' career certainly didn't su- suffer because he didn't stay in Mobile, Alabama. But uh you know. And then, and another guy that uh, is the opposite of that as far as I know never worked on top anywhere except briefly in Omaha for uh, Joe Dusick who came to Mobile and was uh, was the uh main heel in Mobile from Late 1973 until early 1977, full time, was uh, Jerry Miller, Duke Miller, and uh, you know he he started out in the 50s, late 50s and early 60s as a clean cut babyface and worked all over the place and everything. But uh, I think the reason he got over so well in Mobile is he reminded people so much of Mario Galento. He looked a lot like him once he grew his hair out and grew the beard and everything, and it's just. But he was a tremendous worker, and you just—it it baffles me why these guys, you know, I mean, maybe I'm looking at it in rose-colored glasses because I was a kid growing up in that territory. But these guys that that you know just n- never made it anywhere else, you know. And Mobile was was you know not a not an a, 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 a 
A plus territory by any means, but uh, it wasn't a, you know Atlanta or Tampa or Charlotte or anything like that. But for the guys that worked there, you know they made a, they made a living. They were home every night, so they were happy as they could be. Mike, now, Lucas did, go ahead. did Leon Baxter ever work anywhere other than down there? Oh yeah, yeah he worked in Where? Charlotte. He worked in he worked Charlotte. in Atlanta. He worked in Atlanta. He and he and Juan Sebastian were a tag team, uh, both mask and without the mask, called the uh, the Gauchos. The Gauchos, yep. And uh, he worked out in Oklahoma as Tarzan Baxter. Really? Yeah, he was. But see, he was from Dothan. Dothan was his hometown. I and, never uh, ran across anywhere but there. Yep, he was in. Well, uh, I know of. He worked a lot with you know as Tarzan Baxter for many years before he ever became the pro. He didn't start that gimmick until 70, and the reason he did that is he had come back to Dothan and was uh, on the uh, Houston County Sheriff's Department. He was a jailer. So he put the mask on and, uh, you know, had a second you know, a second career as that. But, yeah, he was the uh, McGurk's uh, U.S. Junior Heavyweight Champion for several times out in Oklahoma and uh, like when would that have been? Uh, 66, 67, 68. Oh, I, oh, see, that was, yeah, way far I got in the business. And oh, see, he, and, he was in you don't, Charlotte. You don't remember probably, the Gauchos working here in, in Atlanta Territory? It would have been, might have been before you got into business, Jerry. It was late 60s. Yeah, it was probably uh, 67 or 68. 68, yeah, they were, uh, they were never on top, but they were, they were like middle of the card. Match team? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I kind of remember that. Yeah, yeah, that was. But I, I didn't know that was who it was. Yeah, that was Baxter and Juan Sebastian. And there's another guy, Juan Sebastian. I mean, you know, after he quit being, uh, um, well, he was El Gaucho in most territories, but he he had a run in uh, New York with uh, Pedro Godoy as the Russians and then he came to Mobile in 73 as as one of the as the Russian and uh you know had a had a big push that was probably his last push but most places he was just a El Gaucho and worked prelims and stuff like that I think uh his wife was a bigger star than he was for a long time Bell Bell Star was who he was married to but uh that's another guy that uh, was around forever and ever and ever. Or just about everywhere. But Mobile, Mobile was a territory that had a lot of smaller guys, and it was a good territory for guys that were most promoters probably didn't want to use because they were, you know, smaller. And by well, smaller, I mean, you know, 210 pounds, and that's not a small person as an average person, but that's small for a professional wrestler. Right, but then they could go to Tennessee, and that was another area that uh, yeah. you had a lot of smaller guys. Yeah, and guys a lot then. of them did because of, because of Lee Fields being related to Roy Welch. There was a lot of you know talent exchange between that. I know Joe and Bill worked there, and Lucas worked there a lot. Dennis Hall worked both places. Um, Baxter worked for for Goulas for a while too, but. Uh, But I know Jack Briscoe. Jack Briscoe loved our territory because he would come in 
on his on his weeks off, come in and work six man tag matches. You know. But he worked there. He was there a lot more than any any world champion other than as far as a heavyweight. Now Danny Hodge and Ken Mantell were both there a lot when they were junior heavyweight champions. But uh Briscoe loved it because he had guys that you know he liked working with. He liked working with Baxter, and he loved working with Lucas. I think the only time he he really didn't wasn't happy with where he was booked there, and this was not necessarily his opponent because he worked with Jerry Miller. But where he was booked, <laughs> they had a world title match in uh, that that skating rink in Panama City. <laughs> That'd have been hot too. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, not exactly what you expect. Uh, of course, that wasn't as good as Bobby's story about Ric Flair the first night he worked as champion. Uh, I remember. Uh, well, Pavo, you there, Bobby? Pavo, yeah, Georgia, you, yes, sir. <laughs> I heard your clock a minute ago giving us the top of the hour, so I thought you were probably still there. <laughs> I, I know all about Pavo. My great-grandmother lived in Pavo, so I'm, I'm familiar with Pavo. And there's nothing there. No, there's not. Nothing. Nothing. There's not. Uh, we were uh, we on our last show. We talked about uh, Mr. Fuji and uh, his career. Uh, he was put into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2007 uh, from the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Uh, it shows him holding 14 different titles in his career. Nine of them were tag team. Many of the tag team titles were with uh, Professor Toro Tanaka. Uh, uh, he held the NWA Southeastern Tag Team, the NWA Mid-Atlantic Tag Team, the NWA Pacific Northwest Tag Team, the NWA Pacific Northwest Heavyweight uh, Singles Title, uh, the NWA Hawaiian Tag Team, the AWA Southern Tag Team. That was, of course, uh, in Memphis when they were affiliated with the AWA. And, of course, the NWA Georgia tag team with Tanaka when they defeated Tony Guerrilla and Dean Ho in the finals of a tournament. That was September 19th of 1975 in Atlanta. Uh, the NWA British Empire heavyweight, NWA Canadian heavyweight, NWA United States heavyweight, West Coast version, the NWA WWC North American tag team, NWA WWC North American Heavyweight, the IWA World Tag Team, and of course the WWWF and then WWF World Tag Team, which he held with uh, Professor Tanaka, first winning it in uh, June 27, 1972 in Philadelphia from Chief Jay Strongbow and Sonny King. And the last time they held it, uh, they uh, lost to uh, Strongbow, and uh, Chief J and Jewel Strongbow, October 26, 1982, in Allentown, uh, Pennsylvania. So he was uh, in a lot of places, a lot of titles, particularly tag team, and, uh, you know, quite a professional wrestler, even though a lot of guys, uh, a lot of fans think of him as kind of a little sneaky Japanese guy. Uh, he was uh, also known as a manager, and he held the uh, Observer uh, newsletter award, which was voted on by fans as the worst manager from 84 to 95, with the exception of 1986. And when you think about it, you know, Fuji was kind of the guy with the little little hat on and the sneaky look when he was a manager. So, in fact, being voted worst manager showed he was actually doing his job. You know, he was playing the part of a 
worst managers. So uh, he got over no matter what he did, and he had uh, quite a career. Yeah, he came a long way from when opening matches in, in Hawaii when he was just Harry Fujiwara. Now he held the the second when he held the WWF title. That was him and he and Saito. That's who uh, lost him to the Strongbow Brothers. Right. Uh, they you know this was all that he held when he won it the first time. It was with Tanaka and when he yeah he and Tanaka uh, held it two or three times together the right. WWF, and then right. the Mid Atlantic title he held with uh, Tenru. And then, if I'm not mistaken, the tag title in Portland, his partner may have been Haru Sasaki. He also, I don't know if he held any titles, but he also had a run in Nashville or Tennessee in the late 60s, early 70s. He was called the Great Fuji, and they spelled it F-U-G-I, but that was him (laughs) as well. And he had runs in Texas. But uh, yeah, usually along the way, his the, the most successful part of his career was was with, with Tanaka because they just they complemented each other. And Fuji was not a small guy, you know. You you know he right. was not the built like a fire plug like Charlie Tanaka was, but he was he was not a small guy. He was probably in the two fifty two sixty range, which was you know unusual for. You know, trying to portray a, a sneaky little Japanese guy, like, kind of like Tojo Yamamoto did in his heel days, because Tojo was five foot nothing and weighed, you know, two hundred pounds. But, but uh, yeah, a, he had a heck of a career. Here's a reading from the uh, Wrestling Observer. I give them credit. As soon as Fuji arrived, this was in the WWF. He and Tanaka defeated Chief Jabe Strongbow and Sonny King to win the WWWF Tag Team titles. The match took place on June 27, 1972 at the old Philadelphia Arena in a two-out-of-three-fall match. In the third fall, the heels threw salt in the eyes to capture the title, but there was a problem with the tape, and it was deemed unairable due to technical problems. So the next night in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, they redid the match. This time it was a one-fall match, They did the exact same finish as the night before, and it was actually the Hamburg match that aired on television. Here's the kicker. To make it appear it was Philadelphia, they brought in the Philadelphia ring announcer, Buddy Wagner, to Hamburg the next day just to announce that match. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's that's what they would go to. to, uh, Make it appear to the The fans. Korea and Ho, they they had... um... Let's see that what the how that went. It would they beat Strongbow and King, then Ho or or Korea and Haystack Calhoun right. beat them for the title. Then they came back just you know a few weeks later and re won it, and then Korea and Ho won it from them. So they um, they brought that that angle down to Georgia from uh, from New York. A lot of those tag team titles with them and it took place in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Hamburg was was Allentown was another one. They uh, uh, so I guess that was where a lot and of Hamburg tag and Allentown team, were. I think where they they filmed their TV shows. That's right. That's correct. They uh, they had I think both both cities had a, what they called a field house, which is. Yeah, kind of. I guess like a in the south, a, a farm center. <laughs> 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 it 
<laughs> they probably had paved floors up there. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Uh, uh, Jerry was talking about how guys in the business, uh, you know, uh, would, would do all sorts of stuff and and uh, still keep working. A guy named Bo Dallas, uh, his real, his real name Taylor Rotunda, 26, missed his uh, shows in Mexico. He was working there uh, due to an incident in August 26 at the DFW airport. He was arrested for public intoxication and public drunkenness at 7.25 p.m. local time, according to the police. The crew was on their way from Puebla, Mexico uh, the next day. Steve Bell, who hosts the show The Late Chef, reported that Dallas was this guy, Taylor Rotundo, who he worked as Dallas, was kicked off the flight and appeared to be intoxicated, singing the theme from The Lion King very loudly uh, while on the phone with his wife, and then he told the police to F, them, F themselves. So, you know, there's still guys in the business that uh, are, are are paving the way for showing the uh, general public uh, what professional wrestling is about and who professional wrestlers are, which, you know, it, it made it tough on the guys that were really trying to make a career and trying yeah, to do gets, it all uh, above board. He's, um, he's Mike Rotunda's son. He and uh, the other one that's up there that does the the, the – Swamp Hillbilly gimmick, and I can't think of his name either. But uh, that's Mike Rotunda's two sons. Now, see, you know, this this guy gets arrested, and had it been Ric Flair, they'd have been buying him drinks. Yeah, yeah. Because he's done the same thing I don't know how many times. You know, he's he's gotten his, to where he's stripped naked and running up and down the aisle on, a, on an airplane. You know, uh, spinning his private parts, talking about uh, I'm a helicopter. You know, who is this? Well, he probably yeah. thought he was. Everybody just laughs that off and just thinks that's you know that's just Flair being Flair. Well, you know the uh, did y'all see uh, locally here where uh, oh what's his name? Uh, not Kevin. Is it Kevin Nash? No. Scott yeah. Hall. Scott Hall. Did you see yeah. where he was? Uh, they didn't arrest him, but they escorted him out of the airport. Yeah, he, he was at some bar there in the airport, and TGI uh, uh, Fridays got belligerent and said something smart to the bartender, and her daddy happened to be sitting at the bar, and anyway, they wound up escorting him out of the airport. But then, uh, then I saw the next day that after a little indiscretion, he's back on track in his rehab. Oh yeah, but seventh yeah. or eighth time he's had a little problem. I mean, I... how many times can you get away with that? He was in Vegas last year. Uh, they honored uh, Dallas uh, Page, and uh, and, oh, I, and, I, and I uh, for his rehab thing he's doing, and I, and I really honestly believe he's legitimate, and I believe he's he's probably helped some people. But this guy walked around. This guy walked around with bodyguards. I mean, people couldn't even talk to him. It, it was just this is the most bizarre oh, thing I'd ever seen. Come on, man. Yeah, I'm hilarious. He came up to the matches. They have matches there on Sunday night and Monday night. And, uh, it's you know, it's open to anybody that wants to come. It's no charge or anything. It's just guys that want to say they were wrestled at Caldwell Alley Club. And, and I use the term wrestle very loosely. But he come in there and he sat down on the row in front of me. You know, and, I mean, I've never met the guy. I don't, don't care to meet him. He just he was there, and I seen him. I knew who he was. And I'm telling you, people would come up and try to speak to him. But these two guys just warded him off. No, he can't talk right now. <laughs> and I thought this is really silly, Bobby. 
I wonder how he much he was paying those guys to tell the people he couldn't talk. <laughs> he probably couldn't talk at the time. Made out of bed. That's I don't know. Point. That might have been a shoot. That, that could have been, Jerry, very well, very much so. Yeah, uh, before Jerry, protecting before him, Jerry gets away tonight, uh, before Jerry gets away tonight, uh, Dennis Mitchell wanted to get on, and I'm, uh, he may have something he wants to ask Jerry, so uh, I'm going to uh, get uh, Dennis Mitchell on here right now. Uh, Dennis, you on the line? Yes, sir. Guys, how y'all doing tonight? Doing great. Good, good. Good. Uh, Jerry, I got to ask you something, man. You know what t- that took place in Dudley, Georgia with Greg Green and all? I got to ask you, Jerry, does that take the cake over what Austin Idol did to Fred Ward with the Battle Royal in Columbus? Does that take the cake now? <laughs> that can't take what happened in Dudley, Georgia. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how many guys you got. What, 20 guys there, 30 guys there, 25? 30. But right, been in yeah, business all those years. Some guy nobody knows. Hook them. Yeah. That's the, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> that's the greatest we have ever pulled in the business. <laughs> Man, I tell you, I know Bobby sent me an email on Facebook the other day that. His mom, Greg Green's mama, had him committed to a mental hospital, and and all that. I don't know what's this world coming to, man. I tell you, Greg Green's one lucky guy being a mental hospital right now. Oh, he's, he's not in Oh, he's not that, in that, that, was, that was a swerve that lasted about two days, and the doctors there refused to uh, keep him there, and so they called the uh, sheriff down in Dudley, and they they met him as he walked out the door. Some of the people well, at the hospital right. must have had tickets for the event, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> no, he went all the way to Augusta to try and hide over there. Maybe, but he'd probably ago. been better off going into South Carolina and hiding there somewhere. Right, I think it's it two weeks ago. The wrong, the, the wrong people went to the insane asylum. The <laughs> guys that went there for that. Yeah, people who paid the money to go to the thing. Yeah, I tell you guys, that's that's un. That's unreal there, you know. I thought I heard everything about pro wrestling, and Dudley took the cake, guys. I tell you, I was calling the radio station in Montgomery, Alabama. I was telling them what was going on in Dudley from what I hear and all. It's amazing, guys. I tell you, it's catching like wildfire about what went on in Dudley, you know. I tell you, I would not be surprised knowing Vince McMahon, what he does in WWE. He'll probably do a plot scene with someone like a Greg Green guy. That would not surprise me if he does that down the road. Nothing would ever surprise me about that. He's usually he usually runs as far as his pop culture goes. He usually runs ten fifteen years behind. So yeah, in, in about two thousand thirty, he may do it. Yeah, Michael. I was just wondering that. I want to ask Michael and all, Mister Fuji, and all that. Y'all was talking about him before I got on the phone and all. Did y'all hear about the rib that he did one time? I was watching a shoot interview by our video that Rob Feinstein did with Larry Zabisco about the story that Mr. Fuji and his wife got in a fight up in Tennessee that he, Mr. Fuji had a German Shepherd around the 1970s. He killed the German Shepherd, and they was, he was serving dinner. <laughs> That that story has been <laughs> twisted and told wrong by and and had more people involved in it that weren't involved. But yeah, you know, we talked about that last week, and and you know Bobby was there when when the deal happened. It happened with uh, 
Steve Clemens and Steve Clemens and he did it Steve Clemens and and, uh, and Brute Bernard. And Brute Bernard and Steve Clemens, he was getting ready to leave the territory, and he had cleaned his trailer up and given his notice at the trailer park. And when he was gone to Columbus TV, Brute and, Brute and Steve went over there and wrecked the trailer, throwed stuff in the floor and messed things up. So that Sunday, he, he barbecued a dog, invited them over for lunch. They had no idea they had been found out. And uh, after they got through eating, he brought the dog's head out in the garbage sack. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't uh, anybody in particular's dog. It was probably just a stray he rounded up from yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Man, you know, I but tell you, I, man, that's... I've heard it. You know, that, that happened that, here in Atlanta. In Roddy Piper's man. book, he claimed it was uh, it was Tosh Togo, and I don't know where in the world he and Tosh Togo would have. No, no, no. He said it was Tanaka, but he described Tanaka as the guy who played Odd Job in uh, the James Bond movie, which was totally off. And, uh, you know, everybody's told a different version of it, and they've all added a different person. But the, but the truth of it was it happened to Bernard and Clements, and it happened here in Atlanta. And yeah. it wasn't anybody's pet. I got you. I was, I was just wondering, other than that, guys, what was the most sick rib y'all ever witnessed in the wrestling business? The most sick rib that you thought you seen everything that you I, wish you I wasn't there but it was probably Jerry and his wife not eating it at, at, at Luke Ken Luke's house <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning God I, I've seen a lot of ribs but n- n- Renesto Sr., I, I mean, well, it wasn't sick. It was funny as the devil, but Renesto Sr. put them food coloring tablets in, in uh, Zulu's drinks for about a week and a half or two weeks and told him if his urine ever turned orange, he was going to die or something. And then about <laughs> after a week and a half, he slipped him an orange one. But I know that one, that was about a two-week rib. I got you. Yeah, I, I was just wondering. I'm sure there's been some real sick ones, but... I you know I tried to avoid them as much well, as I could. What I was personally involved in wasn't wasn't sick per se, but uh, had he found out who did it, he, it would probably would have been sick towards me. And I pulled a rib on Harley Race. Um, oh. at, at Atlanta TV, I had been going for several weeks over to a little town called uh, Fayette, Alabama, which is south of Birmingham. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was a, a guy there, and I don't remember what his name was. It was Charles something or other. And, and uh, he was commoter. Yeah. Yeah, he was the commoter, and that's and so <laughs> I I wrote a note. It was it was the night. It was a, the TV taping before Harley dropped the belt to Dusty uh, at the Omni the next night, and uh, Harley was uh, in the uh, control room where we used to sit and watch the TV taping, and, and Jackson and I were were leaving we were going to uh columbus tv so uh we had finished up atlanta tv and we were headed to columbus well i was sitting there writing the note and i wrote uh dear mr harley um my name is charles whatever it is i am the commoter and that's the way i spelled it commoter in in fayette alabama i would like to have you defend your world title Next Friday night in in at the VFW Hall in uh, uh, Fayette, Alabama, I, w- I am willing to pay you top dollar. I will pay you fifty dollars to come 
to spend your time. And I, I wrote that note and I signed it, Charles, whatever his name was, and I folded it up and I dropped it in Harley's bag right on top of the championship belt on my way out the door. So I never heard anything about it. So I'm, I don't know if Charlie uh, or if Harley got a laugh out of it or. I see. Maybe he thought Jerry Oates did it because he he set Jerry Oates up to have those T-shirts sold for a dollar up in Kansas City. <laughs> that sounds about right. I tell you, yeah. man, I tell you that's that's amazing, guys, about all that, you know, and and all that. Uh, I was going to let y'all know, guys, know I read a column that Mike Mooneyham did in Charleston paper back in July. I didn't know that he's in bad shape as he is now. I guess you're that Burhead Jones has. Glaucoma. Yeah, yeah, I'd heard that. And as I didn't know that he was in that bad of shape as he is, and they, I read uh, that he's going. He turned seventy nine September first, and I hope he gets feeling better. You know, he's a good guy, and I just hope everything turns out the best for Burhead. He's a good guy. He's a class. Right amongst corner South Carolina. Yep. Yeah. He's living up yeah, in, no doubt. in New York somewhere. New York City. New York City. That's where. What possessed him to go back up there? I got to think it must be having something to do with his wife's career, but yeah. Greg's he's a one of a kind yeah. fella, I tell you. Yeah, he is, guys. Guys, y'all y'all have a good night. I enjoyed y'all talking about Dudley, Georgia, man. Every time I think of that I get a good <laughs> chuckle out of it because that's, that's we're, we're, we're gonna have things. to find we're gonna have to find another one now, Dennis, to entertain you with. You know, that uh, that can only last so long. So we'll we'll, well try to find another one. All right, guys, y'all have a good night. Thank you. Good night, Dennis. Here's a guy that's not even in the business, and he thinks Dudley George is funny. <laughs> How sad is that? How sad is that? Oh, listen, you're talking, we were talking about Fuji and the dog thing. I'll tell you another guy that used to eat, eat he called it dog. But uh, the the guy that was, the he worked as an Indian and had a kid. Underground. Yeah, they used to ride around in that van, and they, they, had, a, they had a spear. Uh, uh, hooked up with a rope on it, and they would they would catch them a dog and reel it right on into the van, and they used to eat them. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if he's still in prison or not, but he uh, he was involved sometime in either the late '80s or early '90s. They raided his house. He was living in the suburb of Dallas, and they raided his house and found. Something like six million dollars in cash in closets all throughout the house, and uh, a small arsenal of uh, automatic guns. He, had, after he got out of the wrestling business, he became a uh, very profitable cocaine dealer. Oh, jeez! And uh, what's that? Jerry? His real name was Jesus Lopez, but he worked under a myriad, and he was best known as Chief Thundercloud. But he worked. You may have. Crossed him. You were down in Florida the same time he was down there as Pat Valentino. I think I worked with him, and uh, he was in uh, Montgomery when we were there. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. He was. I think he was Thundercloud. And his son Chewy, who was his drummer boy, he was his his partner in the cocaine business. Hmm. Yeah, I can. I can remember seeing pictures of them. He must have been. He was the most successful guy in the business then, right? He was one, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, if he, if he started with uh, selling to the boys, you're probably right. You know, I thought about that after we got off the radio last week, 
about about Joe Malenko, you know, being a pharmacist. Man, what a profitable career he could have had. You know, just sitting in the dressing room. He didn't even have to work, just make the towns. He was very done with. Oh. Well, guys, I'm going to have to go on this. All right, Jerry. Well, keep have a safe week, on. my friend. Y'all be careful. Thank you. All right. Take care. See you. Good night. Good night. Uh, Bobby, last week when you were talking about the doctor that you that uh, you, you kept uh, on retainer there, that uh-huh. uh, you know was there with his uh, prescription pad, uh-huh. uh, and, and you know I I I, I saw him write a few, uh, and uh, uh, did did he have any paperwork on any of the guys whatsoever? No. You know, to well well no let me let me you know for a while there. When I first went to work for Barnett, they had a uh, they had a uh, uh, a Korean doctor. I don't even know. I remember. His name. Uh, yes, that, I don't know. Uh, that's the one. I, that's the one I remember. But then, then, then Doctor Tanner became our our staff physician there at the hospital or at the auditorium. Now there were some guys that actually went to Doctor Tanner. He became my doctor. I went to Dr. Tanner regularly for whatever I needed, you know, for medical problems, whatever. When I got the blood clot uh, and liked to die, or almost should have died, probably, uh, he treated me for that. He, uh, you know, he was Dr. Tanner was a very good doctor and a good physician, and he, he, uh, but he was there. And his, the, his partner that was on call when he was not available at his office was a, was a Greek doctor. His name was Dr. Politsis. And Dr. Polizis was a staff doctor there at Crawford Long in Atlanta. And Dr. Polizis, there we used him. Some of the guys would, when they were hurt, they would go go see him. Uh, uh, Dr. Polizis was the doc when when we did the angle in Atlanta with the Freebirds and uh, uh, Ted DiBiase when they dropped him on his head on the floor. And I had to go to the hospital to get him admitted. Dr. Politsis happened to be on call that day in the emergency room. And me talking to him, I was able to convince him to admit DiBiase to the hospital. So he, he played a part in that deal. that He didn't know he played, but uh, he just happened. Just We just were blessed that he was on call that day. But yeah, that was as far as paperwork. Other than guys that legitimately went to him for something else, no, there wasn't no paperwork on that stuff. And you know, it, it was. I mean, it was. I mean, I it wouldn't have been the guy's problem. It would have been the doctor's problem for not pre- sure it would have you know, sure, protecting sure would have if it was ever questioned. Now, did Georgia require that they had a ringside physician, or you know, the guys take? No, we uh, did not have a commission here or anything like that. But there was that was. There was, that clause, was the, there was a clause in the auditorium contract, I think. And and part of that was, you know, the, the discussion about, oh, we're going to take care of our guys and uh, the other the other promotion doesn't do that and, and that sort of thing. You know, if you had a ringside doctor then or or, or somebody, you know, listed as such, then it, then it would give a little bit more credence to the fact that, you you know, you were in fact doing that. Uh, yeah, Ann had but, a doctor. Now I'll say this for Ann Gunkel, she had a doctor at every every major show that we did. She had a doctor there. You know, if we were in a big can, building, you can understand why. But she had a physician. Yeah. You know, but yeah, it was. 
You know, and back then, I mean, if and I may be wrong, but I think I'm right. I think we paid them a hundred bucks a week. It helped that they were fans, mm-hmm. and they loved the wrestling. So yeah, because but, if you think about it, why uh, they would probably be easier to work with, you know? Yes. Uh, yes. If they were, and uh, so yeah, that would work, work out a lot better. Things are so much. Things are so much more uh, with the internet, and and uh, things are so so much more stricter today. Uh, you know, it would be difficult probably to get a doctor to. Uh, right, and and you know, if you if you think about the way pro wrestling worked, uh, not only just with the kayfabe and the secrecy and and things like that, but. But trying to cover up for things for things that guy, guys did, you know, Bobby, you've talked about how much time you spent trying to keep guys out of jail and getting them out of jail and things of this nature. But I, I don't think the way pro wrestling ran uh, during that time could actually exist now because of the internet and the smartphones and everything else oh, that people have. No. You know, it, it just it it just couldn't happen. Uh, you know, I you hear know, people it, all the time talk about. Uh, you know, the territory days will come back. It's never, it's gone. It's never coming back. You could not run a territory anymore. I mean, before you got out of the building, your finishes would be posted on the Internet or, you know, on Facebook. And what are you going to do tomorrow night in the next town? I mean, they know you're coming, and you just can't do that much. If you're working an angle between two guys or you're pushing trying to to draw money with two guys, you you, you can't do it. It just will not work. No, because it, one, uh, a big piece of that puzzle that's that's no longer even in existence anymore is local television. That's exactly right. Right. Because you think about it, uh, the local channels that are considered local channels in in the city of Atlanta, back you know, from the, even the TBS days, you know there are none. Channel thirty six is an affiliate of a network, and and channel forty six, and all those, you know, they're those are all gone. You know, the yeah. only local programming, and I saw this when I was traveling with the circus, and it, it made it so difficult to do a lot of our advertising because there is no more local media. I mean, other than you might have a small town that has a, you know, a, a like Atlanta has. I guess they still have Good Morning Atlanta or whatever. But that's all it is, is a, is a local newscast. And other than that, there's nothing else. The radio's the same way. Everything is, is yep. you got a, you got a guy sitting there plugging in a tape of a uh, syndicated show, and all he's there to do is change the tapes. Or satellite. Very, or a satellite very, show yeah, satellite, somewhere yeah. else. There's very little local, you know, stuff anymore. There, you might find some up around the Catskills in New York, but that was the only place I ever found it. Well, I did find one in uh, uh, Boston, but it was it was uh, real small. There's still some small FM. stations in some in these smaller towns. There's yeah. still there's still these little stations, but if you're going to, you know, number one, you got to bicycle tapes. You know, yep. you've got to, you know, if, if you. <laughs> If you do a show and you do an hour tape and you 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 set your interviews in there, okay? Uh you run your show in that town, well, you know, you get ready to do the next one, you got to send the tape over there. 
Well, by the time all these people have posted it on their their smartphones right. or their Facebooks or YouTube, you know, you're you're beating a dead horse, and, and exactly. it's, it's it's just yeah, those days are gone. They're not and, coming and back. And wasn't that Mike one of the reasons one of the reasons that uh, the Mobile territory, territory was such a close shop was because they didn't want people to know what was going on in other places and and. And, and you know that's why so they were so that's afraid why of the magazine. Lee would not, uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't do. You know, allow guys from like after and, and play people like that to come to the territory. Not, not that a lot of them did. Gene Gordon, you know, I think tried a few times, but uh, um, and then a little Al Vavasor and people like that. But uh, Lee wouldn't let them in. Now, he he later said that, that he regretted that because. But his 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 words his exact words to Kelly were I don't care what people in other other territories know about going on what's going on here, but um, but I mean you know Mobile especially back in the days when they did live television in uh, in the uh, in Mobile in the fifties and sixties it was you know not unusual to have you know, Mario Galento or, or one of the other guys on one of the other local shows that were there. I, th- I think I've told the story here where they were, uh, Mario was a uh, guest on a uh, Cooking with Connie B. Hope uh, show. It was kind of a, the Martha Stewart of her day in Mobile. And there was a little, little old white-haired woman named Connie B. Hope, and she had a, a uh, an assistant named Estelle. And but they were you know they had Mario on there and then uh, um, it was either Billy Hines or or Rocket Monroe and it wasn't wasn't our Rocket it wasn't Mario High it was the the first Rocket Monroe Bill Fletcher came tearing into the territory and they tore up the kitchen set uh, you know on live this, TV it's just just something that you, that has built that you know from somebody else telling you or is there actually a tape of that, or did you actually see it yourself? Well, it, no, it, it made the newspaper. No, I, this was before I lived in Mobile, but it made the newspaper. I've, I've seen, and I've, I probably got it, I, the newspaper clipping that it happened on. And, uh, you know, they would do stuff like I know in Columbus, when I was living in Columbus, um, one of the most famous things, Mario was working with Billy Hines on live TV and Fred Ward's uh, show, and uh, Mario hit, uh, Billy Boy Hines with a roll of quarters, and Billy loved to to be busted open hard way anyway, and he always bled like a stuck dog. With the the uh, chief of police in Columbus TV happened to be home watching it that afternoon on Saturday afternoon. He politely got in his car, drove to the TV studio, and arrested Mario for assault <laughs> and battery. And that but you that drew a heck of a house because it made the newspaper, made the news, and everything, and it and it, it went. A long way towards saying that, that our business was legitimate. Real, and they did something similar to that. And I, it was Don Carson and Billy Hines, and and I think it was Hines. It might have been Mario Galento, but they they staged a fist fight in a fish restaurant in Columbus. Jerry can tell you about that. Well, Bobby knows about it too. Where it was, yeah. And uh, this just you know type of things you did. Uh, when Bill, Bill Bowman told uh, a story on our show about Haystacks Calhoun going to a movie theater in Louisiana, in New Orleans. They didn't have TV in New Orleans. 
And uh, he went to a movie down there and wedged himself into a seat, and then couldn't get out. Said he couldn't get out of it, and they wound up calling the fire department and had to take the seat apart. And that made the TV and made the news, and they drew a heck of a house. And they didn't have TV, but that's what they did to you know get the publicity out. You know, Ronnie Garvin told the story when he was on with us. Bob Kelly had told me the story prior to that because he was a referee in this match when they were working in uh, uh, North Bay, Ontario. They had uh, it was Ronnie and Terry Garvin against um, I want to say Matt Gilmore and, and maybe Vic, Vic Rosatani or something. But Kelly was a referee, and uh, they had uh, they were in the main event, and uh, in the middle of the match, Ronnie decided to uh, climb up into the rafters of the building, and he got up there and panicked and couldn't get down. And that made the you know that 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 went on so long that it made the the ten o'clock news that night, and they had people going getting in their cars after watching the news and going down to the arena, trying to see get in to see Ronnie stuck up there in the rafters. They had to call the fire department and, everything else. and Terry standing underneath, going, "Don't jump, Ronnie!" <laughs> but. But going back, Kelly and, and Don Fargo one time to push because uh, they had a, a big time feud. They they fought in every city in in the Gulf Coast territory and just beat each other silly, hard, doing hard ways. But they had a thing where uh, that uh, they said on uh, uh, they were having a particular match in in uh, Pensacola on Sunday night and on Saturday night TV. Fargo came out and said, "I'm not going to wait." Till tomorrow night, you just meet me on the beach in the morning in Pensacola, and we'll have at it there. And I want you to know they got, they went out there and, and beat each other's brains out on the beach just to draw a crowd. And they they had a heck of a crowd that night. Some of the crazy stuff they used to do. I'm surprised best, somebody didn't get arrested. That I know of that, that that happened in that Kelly and Fargo feud. Uh, they had something going on where Fargo was. Uh, was either suspended or or something was going on, and, and uh, Kelly was in the ring waiting on on uh, whoever his opponent was that night. And this lady, uh, little old lady, jumped out of the front row seat and jumped in the ring and, and jumped on Kelly. Fargo had been sitting there the whole night in a wig and a dress. He'd shaved his legs, was sitting there the whole night with makeup on and, and kind of hiding his face with a hat. Sat there the whole night, and nobody ever even noticed him. I don't know how you couldn't with all those tattoos and everything, but then he he jumped in the ring. And of course, you know, that built the the feud up for another six weeks. Talking about the tattoos today, that probably wouldn't uh you know people wouldn't pay any attention to it with as many Well he only had he only had them on his arms then, but uh he probably wore a long sleeve dress or something. But yeah, he was uh they used to do some crazy stuff and stuff like that. To Bobby's point, you can't get away with stuff like that anymore. No, no, no. They, you know, there's so many commissions now too. You know, everybody, mm-hmm. everybody wants a piece of the pie. You know, Georgia has one now. Uh, you know, technically, if you promote wrestling, you're supposed to have a license. And uh, we just, uh, you know, but I, I don't. I know first time we went to Columbus, Ohio, that was my first time dealing with a commission. And, buddy, it was an absolute fiasco. You have to have tables all the way around the ring, up against the ring. 
And uh, everybody that's ever been a commissioner or is a commissioner or whatever, they want to all sit there, and you can't stop them. You have to have a doctor there. You have to have an official timekeeper. You have to have – it was just so much stuff. And they actually had a doctor go in the dressing room and check blood pressures and stuff. You know, you had to have a license for the guys. and it was. But that was my first time dealing with them, and it, it, was, it was a mess. Did you know what that all consisted of before you actually – we had there, been Bobby. warned. We had been warned. And the thing the thing about it, you know, here, here's the thing, though. Once you got to know who the main commissioner was for that town and you greased his palms a little bit, that stuff got real easy to deal with. That's just the way things worked. That was kind of the setup there, making it difficult sure it for you at first and then finding out who you needed to really deal with. You know who you deal with, and that's the way that's the way things worked. You know, I mean, it, it's doing business. You know, you, you've heard the old adage: you have to spend money to make money. Mm-hmm. Barnett was a master, and and they, you know, of course, God love Ole. He did what he thought was right, and he, you know, he 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 ran his business the way he thought he should run it. But you know, we never we never had problems getting dates on buildings because we took care of building managers. You know, I mean, we gave them, we would, we would give them a little cash on the side every once in a while. We would give them a, a $500 briefcase for Christmas. We would give them a, well, I remember when the, the year that, that the urban cowboy craze was, was, mm-hmm. was hit, we gave every, every TV station manager, every building manager, every, uh, anybody that could help us or had helped us. We gave them all a Stetson cowboy hat for Christmas, and that wasn't cheap. No. But we gave every one of them a Stetson. And, uh, uh, you know, you might people say, well, that's, that's foolish, that's wasting. But no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Because those kind of things came back to help you in the long yes. run. When you every, got time a building that, that every time they look at that hat. Every time they look at that hat. you got a building that's they... selling out uh, every time yeah. you book it. You want to make sure the dates are available so you take care of the building manager. And you know, I mean, it was, people can say, "Well, that's illegal. You shouldn't do that." You know, and Oli, Oli wouldn't do it. Oli refused. He knew I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. That ain't the way you do business. Well, when he started losing them dates, and Vince took all his buildings away from him, I bet he wished he'd have took care of some of those people. Yeah. So, you know, that's uh, but that's all in the past. But that was just, you know, that's the way things work. We we never had a commission in Georgia because we knew the right people to keep it from getting out of committee. Mm-hmm. That's just, you know, I mean, I've I've been to many political functions that I didn't have no business being at, but I went for a specific reason, and, and you know, it, it worked. So. Yeah, because if you look at a lot of the, the territories that had state commissions, um, had Georgia had one, and I know he was he was always looked at as the Atlanta promoter anyway. Paul Jones would have been the only on paper he could have been the only one. Fuller and, and Gunkel could not have had their names as part of the promotion and still been active wrestlers. That's why Lee Fields always had uh you know, until he he quit totally in, in sixty eight um until he made his little comeback in, in 71 and then again in 77 he um 
he always had a figurehead promoter. You know, he was either uh, um, Rocky McGuire or uh, Skip Wetchin or uh, um, I can't think of his name. There was a guy named Leroy that uh, was a TV guy from Pensacola that he used periodically. Or Les Wolf would come down from Nashville and do it. And, and, you know, Buddy Fuller did the same thing. You know, Buddy Fuller used a guy named by the name of Eddie Pericola, who actually was a promoter in Panama City, but that's whose name was on the paperwork because it was against the commission rules for an active wrestler to also own the territory. And when Lee bought uh, Louisiana for those three years he ran Louisiana, or South Louisiana, he kept the promoter's license in uh, the name of... Um, Harry Romero, which is, was the guy he bought the territory from, and they, they, it was called Rome Promotions because Lee was an active competitor. Uh, another example, and the uh, promoter for Alexandria, Louisiana, in those days was Sputnik Monroe. But on paper, his wife Midge was the promoter. But but Well, that's you know, one of the reasons that... Uh, in uh, New York, that Vince, uh, you know, admitted that it was all the work was so that he wouldn't have to deal with the uh, commissions the as a yeah yeah as as a uh, you know a, a legit athletic event. Well, New York had some crazy rules, so they couldn't. Uh, oh yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't advertise. If you've ever seen old. Uh, videotape of the matches from uh, the 60s and 70s up there, they could not say that their matches were contests. They had to say they were exhibitions. Well, kids under 12 couldn't get into Madison Square Garden. Uh, the garden, you know, that had some specific uh, rules. Uh, mask guys couldn't work in the garden, even though you did say that Mill Maskers worked there a couple of times. Right? Yeah, he broke the – He, but, the thing, you know, the first time he was the first one to work there – with a full mask on, uh, the preliminary that uh, on that same card, El Olimpico worked, but he worked with an open face mask, and that was uh, Joey Correa. And Mascaris's uh, opponent that night was Don Jardine, but he had been working in that territory as the spoiler, but he didn't wear a mask anyway. Yeah, those open so. face masks were really bizarre. The first there was a uh, <laughs> Latino. A uh, tag team uh, up there at the time that, uh, and you know they worked everywhere else on the circuit up there with with the full mask. But uh, I saw a picture of them in one of the after mags with this open face mask that looked similar to a you know to a bathing suit type mask. But yeah, it was yeah. it was just really odd because the guy's forehead down to right below the chin was was open, but they still had the rest of the mask on. Yeah, another guy, there was a guy, uh, Clyde Steves, worked up there as both the uh, Shadow and as the Golden Terror. Well, as the Golden Terror, all he wore, he didn't wear a mask, he wore like a, a, a aviator's helmet like Frank Hickey used to wear. <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 uh, it, actually it was nobody under the, no kids under the age of 14 were allowed. And that, that all stemmed back to the riot that they had uh, in 57 with uh, Jerry Graham and Rocca and per, uh, 
Carpentier and the Bruiser. Um, that's what that stemmed from. Of course, they banned women wrestlers up until 1972, and uh, the whole state of New York did, not just not just New York City and Madison Square Garden, but the whole state of New York did. But uh, I don't know. They had uh, the, uh, it's funny, the, the New York, um, especially the Madison Square Garden, they had, uh, there was a certain number of matches that the promotion could not use their own referees. They had to use mm-hmm. actual New York State Athletic Commission referees. And right. you can certainly tell the difference in somebody who worked for the, the promotion like Dick Kroll or Dick Worley versus Gilberto Ramon, Ramon Gilberto, whatever his name was, Gilberto Roman, who was a commissioner, uh, commission referee as to how they worked. So it was, I don't know. But I guess it was worth all that for the, for the money that they made, you know, once a month to, to have to deal with that, but... But going back to the the thing, you know, Ed Farhat, even though he owned the Detroit territory, it was in his father-in-law, Francis Flesher's name, or um, yeah, I think that was his name, Francis Flesher, Flesher, something, was um, was on the on-paper promoter. But there again, Georgia had, they would have had somebody built in anyway because Paul Jones always had a piece of the office, so they could always right. say he was the promoter. You know, those people in New York, you talk about the riot. You know, you look at the matches from the garden and you see the old tapes from up there. If those people had been exposed to the kind of matches we had down south, uh, can you imagine how somebody, crazy they would have been? Somebody would well, killed. A lot of things, though, were when you had Bruno up there or uh, uh, who was the Hispanic guy that was uh, after him? That had Pedro, Pedro Morales. Uh, yeah, Pedro uh, Morales. You know, there was Morales. a very big... Yeah, Morales, there was a very big uh, uh, Latino fan base there. And, uh, you know, the same way with Bruno, with with, with the Italians, uh, that's where the riots came in. They, they, they refused to believe that they could lose. And uh, so they had to be very careful because uh, those folks would tear the place up. Yeah, in fact, when Bruno dropped the belt to uh, Koloff, they did not announce, you know, Koloff was the winner and new champion. He just left the ring with the belt, mm-hmm. and they did not they did not announce it because they they were afraid of, of the riot. But yeah, back back to what Bobby was saying, I can see you know, or some of the the crazy Tennessee stuff. They'd been they'd been killing people up there. We had a uh, they did one of the pay per views. It was a it was not a. We, it was in conjunction. It was for McMahon, but it was they they did they closed circuited the matches out of Atlanta for some reason, and you had wrestling two against uh, Terry Funk. And they went an hour draw that night, and you had Jack Briscoe against against Dory Junior in the semifinal. And anyway, they showed a couple of these matches. They they closed circuited them up north, and uh, uh, we you know we got a little feedback because of the type of matches we had down here they were so different there was high spots and guys working and busting their butts right and, and then especially yeah. the hour the hour draw with the with the two and Funk and Terry you know I mean 
they're not those people up front that up north that was new to them that was foreign yep you had these big guys that could barely walk from one side of the ring to the other uh you know and uh, they would beat and stomp on each other occasionally but the matches were you know that's what i saw the first time that i saw matches from new york which i thought were going to you know i was really anticipating something but those guys were so slow you know they uh it, it was nothing like what you had uh, in what you would call southern wrestling. Oh yeah, that's. Well, they started getting the. Uh, I don't know how Eddie Graham did it, but he he got uh, started uh, syndicating the Florida shows up in New York in seventy two, seventy three, somewhere in that time frame. But Roberto Soto told me a funny story about um, he was in the Carolinas and. Um, they wanted to uh, bring Manny and his brother Manny and the, Cro- the Crocus did, but they didn't want Manny to come in as, as Manny Soto, so they brought him in under a hood as <clears throat> El Rayo. And uh, they had, I can't remember who he said they were working with. might have been Gene and Ole. Uh, in fact, it was Gene and Ole. Um they were working, beginning to build a program with uh, Roberto and, and El Rayo against the Anderson brothers. And the uh, first match they had, Manny blew up within five minutes because, you know, they were expecting him to wrestle. And he'd been up there in New York so long where all they did was punch and kick. Roberto said, you know, my brother couldn't work, you know, past five minutes. He kept having to tag me out, and he blamed it on on having to wear the mask, so they let him take the mask off, and then the next week it was, you know, the Soto brothers against the Anderson brothers. Well, the same thing happened. Roberto said after the second week, uh, they called him into the office and let him go. He said, I'd always wanted to work in Charlotte because I'd heard what a great territory it was, and, and my brother, because he couldn't work a damn lick anymore from all that New York-style wrestling, that uh, he cost me my job up there. <laughs> I always wondered why they didn't work together more than that, and that explains it right there. Well, they did. They had great runs in, in Florida and in Georgia and in uh, um, Louisiana and in Mobile is is in the uh, late '60s is Cyclone and Roberto Soto, but that was before Manny went up there to New York, right? And you know he quit he quit wrestling, and all he did was you know occasionally he'd throw a drop kick, but other than that it was punch stomp punch stomp punch stomp, and you know or mm-hmm. rest hold, and then that was it. But when he had to actually wrestle and do high spots, he blew up. And the the rope seemed looser too. You know they just. Uh... Uh, it was just odd. It, you know, it was professional wrestling, but it was it it was nothing like what was going on here. And I know everybody says, "Oh, our our wrestling was the best," but you didn't have to watch anything uh, for you know a period of time before you could spot differences. And it's like you were talking about watching the Luca Libre style matches out there. Uh, you know, it's for somebody that's never seen that. That's that that's that's quite odd looking. Uh, after a while, you learn what it's all about, but it's uh, it's it's certainly it's certainly different. Well, the thing that always killed me was, and I, I, I noticed it, or you could tell if you followed, you know, what what they did in New York in the Bruno and, and Pedro and through Backlund days, and it was really brought out when when I was reading Bob Backlund's book, is 
the way they booked Madison Square Garden, the first match between the champion and the and a brand new challenger always ended up either the challenger getting disqualified or the match was stopped because of blood. Mm-hmm. Then they'd bring it back and the champion would get disqualified and then they'd finally do a blow off of sometime in the third third month or sometimes they'd shorten and just do two. But you know, if it, if it was that way, day or month in and month out for ten years, how were they fooling anybody? I don't know that they. You know, once again, you know, people would say that about pro wrestling in general. Uh, I think you just there has to be a suspension of belief, or it's you know, to a certain extent, you 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 clap for the for the baby faces, you boot for the heels. And it, it, well, I it, guess so. Which, and if, uh, even though they drew, you know, tremendous houses up there, they had such a big population to draw from. They may not have had the right. same fans month in and month out. Well, but it just let me let me, me. let me Good. throw something in about that drawing the big crowd. If you look at the population of New York, they drew less than one half of one percent of the population right. of New York one day a month into that building. Yep. You know, so yeah, they sold the building out, but. They also sell it out for uh, ice capades, right? You know, so so I mean, different I, audience. Yeah, it, it's it's just a uh, that's always been a, a I think a misnomer when they talk about the huge crowds they draw at Madison sure. Square Garden, and it, you know, I mean, you take once, once, a, once take, a year, once take, a year we sold out the Omni, you know, at least right. once a year, you know. But you but if you were to look at four Friday nights at the auditorium. And put those four Friday nights together, and then look at one Madison Square Garden show. You're really looking at, you know, the, the same thing. You've got more people. Twenty-two thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. It's but you're as far as money was concerned, it was the same thing. Sure, it was. And it was harder doing it every week because you had to get the people back every week. You know, once a right. month, it was fairly easy to, you know, you know you're going to draw because they only came once a month. Uh, and but you were talking about the blow is, is, Yeah, if you knew, you know, say Bruno worked against Bull Ramos and, you know, through three matches and they all went the same way and then, you know, four months down the road, he's going to work with Killer Kowalski and that might, you know, they do the same thing, you know, that type thing. And it's just, I don't know how they did it, but I, you know. They do the blow-off in New York and they it, take so. the match. They take the match around the circuit. We're down to a yeah. minute and a half, gentlemen. If you got anything you want to finish up with, I just want to uh, not next week, but week after next. I told you before we went on the air it was next week, but actually week after next, if things work out, we will have a special guest, a young lady by the name of Dawn Lemke or Donald Lemke. She worked under both names back in the early seventies. She was a rarity as far as uh, women wrestlers go because she was not affiliated with Moolah at all, but still had a very successful career and worked uh, several top places. So she is uh, anxious to do the show, but unfortunately she's traveling next week, but she will will probably join us in two weeks. And uh, I'm working on a couple of other things that hopefully will pan out here within the next month or so. And, I know people get tired of the four of us just talking about, you know, <laughs> things all the time, but uh but I enjoy it and that's all that matters. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh one other thing right quick, Charlie Smith told me, and I haven't seen it, y'all may have seen it on Facebook somewhere, but there are four large billboards up 
in Columbus, Georgia, advertising uh, that show down there in October. Uh, I think it's October 1st. I think it's a Saturday. Uh, uh, I believe that's the right date. But, it, yeah, it, he said there's billboards up down there advertising it. Well, good luck. Well, I'm sure Charlie Yeah. Just somebody get down there early and make a special announcement that I won't be there. Yeah, you got that right. Me neither. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. We thank you for listening to this broadcast. A production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.